The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture is Galatians 4, 12-20. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for who I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thanks, Julia. Well, I was just on a text thread this last week with few friends of mine, and um, I responded back in haste and uh, realized uh, several minutes later that I responded not reading well what was actually written to me. So I came across as super snarky, and uh, I was going, yeah, it's not good. So I I had to respond back, and I'm sure many of you may have been in that uh, place before where you read something, especially over an email or a text. And um, you kind of read it in a certain way because maybe you, the punctuation or the words or languages. Um, but uh, there's actually, this is, uh, was humorous to me, I was actually sent this article from the Washington Post on this. Listen to this. Uh, obviously, it says something about me. Study confirms that ending your texts with a period is terrible. <laughs> ending your texts with a period is truly monstrous. We all know this. I guess we all know this. Grammar be darned, it just doesn't look friendly. Now a study has confirmed it. (laughs) How great is that? Researchers report that text messages ending with a period are perceived as being less sincere, probably because the people sending them are heartless. (laughs) Quote, text messaging is one of the most frequently used computer-mediated communications, or CMCs. Methods. The rapid pace of texting mimics face-to-face communication, leading to the question of whether the critical nonverbal aspects of conversation, as such as tone, are expressed in these texts. Now, it is a funny article, but it does it does express the reality that tone matters, right? Tone matters uh, because language matters. Maybe many of you have been in an email thread or a text chain of sorts like that, and um, something may be uh, painful or difficult or something has come up and you're trying to mediate it through that channel and it can be so difficult. Why? It's because the tone matters, because words matter. And they carry great weight. And especially, uh, you know, as funny as it is about periods, it does say something about how we actually interact. What, what do we think rather than actually speaking face to face? You know, Paul, when he writes this, is wanting to convey deep emotion to this church. And he wrote this letter. This is a letter we're actually studying. And if you're jumping in the middle of it, that passage may have seemed kind of weird. (laughs) 
because we're reading and learning from a letter called Galatians. It was written to a church in Galatia from a guy named Paul in the 50s, 60s, somewhere between the 50s and 60s AD. And when he wrote this, he had written a lot. He was arguing a lot about a timeline and theology, things that we might think the Bible discusses. When he gets to this point in the letter, he actually, you can feel it almost, downshifts into this very personal, difficult interaction with them. And he's trying to convey something through his tone. So much so, he makes it really forthright in verse 20. He says, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. Because the words matter. Language matters. And what this letter does is to convey what really matters to Paul about this Galatian church. Just a little context of this that you can read in here. He's talking to a group where he started this church. He talks about uh, uh, um, pains of childbirth. He's, He's really giving the metaphor that he birthed this church. He created this out of this relationship. Some of the context we're unsure of, his um, being taken care of, whether his eyesight or another illness of sorts. And yet this church came from him, and and after he left, a group came after him to say, "Eh, that's not really what Christianity is. You know, Paul tells you all these good things about living in in freedom and Christ and grace and truth, but really what it means is you gotta take on these things. You gotta be somebody different. You You gotta take on new rituals, new personality, new kind of life in order for you to be a Christian. Get over the finish line, get over the hump of being a Christian. And Paul, after arguing about this issue through a number of chapters, we're in chapter four, as you can see, after a number of chapters of saying, look, the timeline of this, of our church, the theology of what it really means to be a Christian, he now downshifts to say, look, my heart is broken for you because here's the reality of our relationship. And he's not trying to shame them. He's trying to tell them and remind them of his deep affection for them. And we get to read of it. We get to read of his pain. We get to read of his longing for them to understand the truth of what it means to be a Christian based on just the fact of their very relationship, if anything else. And so I think there are two things that he really wants them to get about his relationship and what his ministry and how it's distinguished that I think actually should distinguish what it looks like for us to interact if we wanna be a church. It first means empathy. It means Do you really know what it means to be and live in someone else's shoes? Empathy. What does it mean to really care for somebody and know who they are and them know you? And the second thing is zeal. You know, that word zeal pops up here, zealous. We don't use that word a lot because it sounds really kind of fanatical, but it simply means a passion for, right? A deep zeal for. And he tells them these two things. So let's walk through his affection, his pain, and he begins it with his empathy, right in the verse 12 there. He said, I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. He says this often in uh, his letters. It's actually a really interesting thing. And he says, become like me, for I became like you. He's not saying become like like imitate me. He's actually saying, become like me after all that I've just said to you about what it means to be free in Christ. He said, I became like you. He appeals back to what it meant for him to walk into their life and live among them. Many of us may think of Paul or somebody like this going to uh, an area like Galatia, almost like a street preacher would, and standing on a corner and yelling, you're all wrong. (laughs) 
I remember even, uh, you know, if you work on a campus long enough, I worked across the street for many years. Uh, we had a, and it doesn't happen as much at Vanderbilt because it's pretty much a bubble and they don't, there's nothing in, but you may have been to a school or been to a certain place where somebody stood up and just pointed and just yelled. I remember a specific person came and during a Saturday, of course, when all the fraternity parties are going on and screaming and yelling at how bad everybody was from a car window even, <laughs> and then turning the corner. But Paul isn't doing that. Paul, far different from this, doesn't come and pass through and say how they're wrong. He actually comes to learn what it's like to be them. If you read uh, other accounts, there's a book called Acts in the um, Bible. Acts is a narrative account of Paul and others going to cities and how they actually brought the good news of Jesus to them. And if you read about Paul, particularly when he went to cities like Athens, like major cities like this, He doesn't stand on street corners and tell them how they're wrong. He first actually lives in their world and learns what it's like to be them, then discusses later on. Usually, if you read his speeches or his his sermons, they always connect to something they know in their marketplace, in their religions, in their food, and he usually draws it out there. Why? Many of you know this, and you may have lived in this way. You know, when you go to somebody's house, uh, maybe even for a 24-hour period, and you um, are visiting, maybe it's family, maybe it was over the holidays or something like that, and you, you get into someone else's home after you travel and you remember what it's like to live in their home. You kind of pick up on patterns, right? Uh, you pick up on where people sit at a dinner table, uh, kind of the same place they sit when they watch TV or the way they get up or the noises in the house or the aroma that's there, or the way that, that people talk about things or maybe even a certain word or topic that comes up regularly. It's the same thing. Paul comes in not telling that. He comes in to live and learn what it's like to be a Greek in Galatia. Because he's a Jew, just saved himself by Jesus Christ. He comes in to ask the questions. What is food like for y'all? He learns what what are the best restaurants here? What what do y'all wear? What do y'all think about these things? He asks the questions. He learns those things. He says, for I became like you because that's what empathy is. Empathy is stepping into the shoes of someone else and learning what it's like to be them. It's, It's small. It's not these big dramatic things. It's small questions, life, living. And here's the difference. Empathy comes through truth. Notice they get mad at him at some point. Because what happens is these people come behind Paul and instead of like Paul asking these questions, they say, yeah, 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 Paul said these things, but you're all wrong. They came on the drive-by. And they said, you wanna be a Christian? You gotta put all that stuff away. You wanna be a Christian? You gotta act differently. You gotta be different. Here's the difference. It didn't come through the truth, it was at it. Paul says in verse 16, have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth, by being honest with you? Not about his own experience, but by, he's saying, you become like me, like one who realized the freedom of the gospel, freedom of the good news of Jesus. The difference between that and what's called enmeshment, have you ever heard that word in uh, counseling or relational terms? But enmeshment means you don't know where your emotions end and the other person's begin. It's actually unhealthy codependent relationship. It's, it's, kind, of a, it's kind of thinking that you have to be that person rather than be with them. And Paul is saying, here's the difference. Empathy is me loving you 
in these places and learning what it's like to be you. I'm never saying, though, to you to be me, but to be like me in these things. Because he says, the whole point isn't to be me, it's to be Christ in you. The freedom from the gospel, not restraint, freedom. Restraint is, you gotta be like me. You gotta feel everything I feel. You gotta do the things I say. You gotta say the things I say. Think the way I think. That's enmeshment. That's unhealthy in any relationship, more or less, in the gospel. The truth of what Paul is bringing them is to say, here's what it's like to be you in it. And I'll tell you, there's an interesting phrase that I've heard lately, um, especially, particularly in, in uh, popular culture, television and other just mindsets called my truth. Uh, let me tell you my truth. There's kind of this unveiling of, hey, my truth. And it's become this popular turn of a phrase. I don't know if you've encountered it. I, I hear it quite a bit now where people use it in order to say, hey, this is what it, my viewpoint. But it's actually a very detrimental way. And it's, it's become a big thing, I think, in our culture because truth, instead of being something that we all may have a viewpoint of and we can come to and talk about, takes truth and said, no, it's only me. My vo- viewpoint can only be the one that matters here. You may have yours, but I have mine. They don't interact. And even not just Christian, but people who may not consider themselves Christians have written on this because it's become such an issue of um, not just um, being illogical in a sense, but difficult and harmful relationally for many. Because to say my truth means you're expressing really your experience or viewpoint. And what Paul is getting at here is not, hey, this is my truth, you have your truth, we're gonna blend them. What he says is, no, the difference in Christianity is I'm not trying to conform you to my truth. That's not what he means when he says become like me. What he's actually saying is conform to the truth with a capital T. He's actually saying the truth as a person, that is Jesus, not a rule of law I'm bringing to you that you need to be something else. The difference between him and those who came after him is say, nah, to be a Christian, you gotta conform. This is my truth, my viewpoint. They're saying you gotta, you gotta really take on my viewpoint, which makes it incredibly difficult. Whose viewpoint is right? What if your viewpoint is wrong? What if you're... Viewpoint simply, logically, is to say that oh, I need to do certain things. In other words, I, man, I, I knew I had a friend in college who his viewpoint was that it was okay for him to cheat on tests. Literally, this is not, I'm not making this up. We used to talk about it because he did not come from a Christian background. He, he was saying to me, you know, what I need to do is be able to do what works for me. And I, my first question was always, hey, what do you do with the honor code system that the whole school has put in place to say that what you're doing shouldn't be doing? Well, but if I feel like it's okay for me, then I can move around that. But do you see where this goes? When you utilize my truth rather than, yeah, okay, maybe you feel that. It's one thing to feel that, but to say it is your truth that is the standard, that's where it becomes dangerous, doesn't it? And that's what Paul is saying. He's trying to be honest with them. Because the truth is, their relationship isn't about him trying to conform. Their relationship came through tr- this truth, the truth of being free and through suffering and serving. Notice this, <clears throat> verse 13, as you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. And where then is your blessing of me now? And I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. 
This background, we don't know everything about what's going on here in this background, this context. Some of it you can try and piece together, but what we do know is that this church was born out of not just Paul driving by and saying, a church shall be formed here. That's kind of what we may think of the Bible, right? When Paul visited a city, it was like, a church here, you know? (laughs) That's that's not how it happened at all. It came through the empathy of the, the Galatians even towards him. Not only did he learn what it was like to be them, but through the suffering of Paul came these relationships, came the good news, and came a church that they cared for him, that they leaned into that. And I I have to say this. I think that many times we can look at the growth of the church as coming through uh, our voice being so loud and strong. We're, we're in a time period that's considered a post-Christian era. Now, I'll explain a little bit of that, what that if you haven't heard that language. It, it means in many times past, we've thought and it's been said that Christianity had a voice at the table. We could speak and people would listen. And we're now finding ourselves in an era where Christianity may not even, not only have a seat at the table, but may not be asked to the table. And, and what I want to encourage us about is that that actually excites me. Because what we see here is that, and we see it in all through the Bible, that it's not about how loud our voice is. That the church actually grows through suffering and serving. It, it, the beginning of Acts, this is the whole narrative account of the church, Acts 1.8 Chapter one, verse eight says that the church is gonna go out and take the the glorious gospel, the good news of Jesus to the whole world. But you don't see when it actually does until chapter eight, verse one, when it says it was through persecution and suffering that the Christians spread throughout all these regions to begin showing and sharing who they were. The church grows through suffering. It grows in serving together. And I think we can get wrapped up in thinking that we need to have a voice. Or maybe that we, maybe, maybe it is this. Look, we're entering into a political season where many of you may really have an anxiety about it. And I want to encourage you with that. And I don't, I'll be honest with you, and I don't mean this in a rude way, I don't really care how you vote. I think the importance of what you think about being a citizen, that we need to do things that are step into political worlds and arenas. I don't think the other opposite view is to jump out and not do anything. But the importance is, is, are we, is our first foot leaning on who's in office so that we have a voice? Or is our first foot to know that the way that we are healthy as a church doesn't matter who's in power? It's actually who suffered for us. That's actually what this is saying. Do we realize that this is being written to a Roman province in Galatia where Christians were actually being burned at the stake by the government at the time? And what he's saying is, it's through suffering, it's through that empathy, it's through leaning in. Look, y'all know this by just normal life. Some of you in connect groups have been in connect groups, what we call our neighborhood groups, connect groups. I've dealt with <clears throat> deep suffering in those, whether it's through deep marital issues, job loss, health, death. 
And isn't it through those things that makes your group, and I've heard you say it to me, we have never been more loving and leaning into one another than when we have done this. So many of you have come to our church and you have served by setting up just the simple hour that you give in a morning and you've told me or Aaron or Jordan or whomever it is that you've served with, I've never felt more connected now than when I actually spent time doing this because I was connected with other people. There's something beautiful and glorious about leaning in, about living in life together and suffering and serving because that's how the church grows. Are we showing that? Are we willing to believe that so that we can lean into everything else and not look to everything else to form us? Because this is what it means. His affection for them goes way beyond anything that they can try and put on. It goes to the empathy and the relationship they have about how they suffered together and that they served him, that they would have torn out their own eyes. And did it mean they all agreed all the time? No. But it meant they leaned into one another because who is the one that suffered for them? because they live and believe in the suffering servant. Look, it, it comes through the mundane things of life. There was a former, uh, a former pastor I know wrote this article called The Business at Hand, How This Looks for Us. And he said often that we think of these kind of things in big splashes. He said, no, it comes through the business at hand, the ordinary mundane duties and experiences that make up the larger portion of our lives. Jesus said the whole sum of Christian living was loving God and loving our neighbor. And that means having a ministry of presence. That means who is hurting right next to you? Who is in poverty right next to you? Who has lost a baby, a father, a marriage, a friendship right next to you? That's the ordinary ministry of life. That's what it means to live together. It's not big splashes, big voices, those kind of things. It's loving and living and serving and suffering well. And I love what he says at the end of this. He says, the ministry of presence doesn't sell well. It's a little hard to measure. We're not even sure what it looks like ourselves. It requires dogged obedience and robust prayer. But this is what it means to know God. When we think about evangelism and discipleship, we think about meeting with people where they live in the business at hand. There we will find the great struggles and messes, and there we will see the transforming graces of Christ. And many Christians will never notice or even recognize this as ministry because it makes so little noise. So what? God brings extraordinary things out of the ordinary. That's the gospel. Think about this for a second. The work of the Galatians' love towards Paul in his illness brought forth this glorious church, which we now read a letter, and because the gospel, the news of Jesus, went to the ears of people who were not Jewish, not anything welcomed in as we would be, Greeks, non-Jews like ourselves, the message of the good news comes all the way to us through this letter and affection, through the empathy, through the truth and the suffering and the serving of living life together. And what's at the heart of it? At the heart of it is the zeal. Verse 17, those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. He delineates the fact that there is, let me remind you, what comes to the heart of this, this empathy is there's this bad zeal and there's a good zeal. 
There's a bad zeal that talks about this. And, and when he says they're zealous to win, zealous to win you over for no good, they want to alienate you. So they may have, you may have zeal for them. What he's talking about is the actual language, the Greek language means a courting process. It's almost like that old school thought of, I'm gonna court this person to be uh, my you know, husband or wife. It's a flattery, it's a puffing up. He's saying they're puffing you up to be something that you think you need to be instead of just coming, instead of being and coming in the gospel. That they're zealous for this. And they're saying that they want, and here's, here's what it really comes down to. These people that are following Paul and saying, you gotta be better than you are to be a Christian. They're wanting fans, not followers. And I think oftentimes we can get confused about what it means to be a, a fan instead of being a follower. Especially in a city where it can, it can be almost like an extracurricular activity to be at a church because there are so many churches in our city. It can be easy to say, yeah, this is a part of my day. I'm a fan of God. I'm a fan of this Christianity. I'm a fan of all this stuff. I do all these things. But what does it really mean to be a follower? The follower of Christ. I remember when I was, um, I don't know if you grew up this way, but I had high school coaches, uh, particularly my, my football coaches, I don't know why, but my, I had coaches growing up, high school, college, and those kind of things, that just said the weirdest things. You, you, do you have any of these? Like, I remember a coach, somebody told me the coach said, hey, they were talking about getting to the playoffs, and they said, you know what, we're like a turtle on a fence post. We wouldn't have got here unless somebody put us here. It's like, what, what does that mean? Like, who taught, who's, turtle fence post? Like, we're in the playoffs, you know. I remember my coach used to say, and um, when we, we were practicing, and he would, he would say, hey, you can be a honker or a waver, or you can play on this football team. And we're like, that's just weird. What, what are you talking about? He was one of my favorite coaches, and I realized after I graduated from high school what he was talking about. People used to drive by all the time when we were practicing, and they would honk and wave and give their lead, like, talk, and even sometimes stop and watch us practice and those kind of things. And he was trying to get across to us in the weirdest way, and yet such a simple, beautiful way, that you can either honk and wave and act like you're a part of everything just because you go to school here, or you can actually wear it and clothe yourself in it and go through the suffering and go through the difficulty of waking up and going to bed with bruises and all the things that you have. And in that strange way, what is he saying? There's a difference between being in it and being a fan. And I think we can do that so easily. And that's what those coming after him were saying. They're saying, you don't, you, Paul's saying, do you see yourself? I'm trying to tell you the truth. Verse 16, he's saying, how you've become my enemy by me telling you the truth. He's saying, be, I'm being honest with you about what I see about you. And I think we can keep ourselves, and what does it do? It alienates them. And does, isn't that what it does? When somebody wants to tell us what it's look like to be us, we want to push ourselves away. And that's why the, the truth of Christianity can hurt. And we can want to be a fan of God rather than a follower, someone who's really in it and feeling it because we don't like it when somebody tells us what we really look like or what we really act like or think like. Not to conform ourselves to some religious person or standard or me or someone else in this room that holds themselves up. There's no platform here. Let's get rid of that. It's to be formed to Jesus, formed to him. I love, uh, I listen to This American Life off and on. If you hear it, it's an NPR program. 
Most of the time, some of the, the uh, leading illustrations are some of the best when it opens up. And this one was called, Is That What I Really Look Like? And the opening illustration was great. The woman who was narrating, she said, it just jumped into the story. She was around uh, this stranger who, in a line, looked at her and started staring at her neck. And then all of a sudden said, you know, your neck is really a lot more yellow than your face. And she said, uh, okay. And, and he, she said, he kept staring at me. <laughs> Not looking at, looking at my neck and looking at my face and trying to make sense of it, not as an insult, but merely as an observation. <laughs> and she said she walked away from that and as the point of the whole story is, there's so many of us who've lived our whole lives, we know ourselves, we see ourselves, we think we really know the reality of us and it just is a simple stranger's comment to throw us off to say, do you really know what you look like? Paul is coming with a mirror because he loves them. And here's the difference. Those who are zealous for fans, those who are wanting to puff them up, they're wanting to puff them up and load them up with things to make them feel like they're in. Here's the difference. Christianity is a come-as-you-are party. Christianity says, you're to come. It does not matter where you are. Come. But it is not a stay-as-you-are party. It is a come-as-you-are party, but it's not a stay-as-you-are party. It means transformation. It means change. The difference in what these people are doing with Paul, and most of us hear Christianity this way, is that most of us think, hey, come, but you can't stay this way. Paul is saying, you need to come, no matter where you remember what we talked about. Remember our relationship. Remember me entering into your life, not driving by and telling you what you need to do, what you need to think, what you need to wear in order to stay. But me saying, come as you are, so that you can be transformed into the glorious wonder of Jesus. Because if we don't, it can alienate. Zeal unattached can alienate. And we want to be fans. We don't want anybody in our life to really tell us what we look like or who we are. But the church is to be that way. Ministry, healthy life. This is why Paul says this. And this is the only place he uses this in verse 19. He says, my dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. How I wish I could be with you. He compares himself to a mother. And a mom, no matter where you are, I don't know where your relationship is or was or with your mother. But what he's trying to put himself in the position is any relationship that you have, that you know, that you want more for that person than they want for themselves. And often that is what he's saying. He's saying, we don't want fans, we want a family. I came to you and I see you in this way. I don't see you as one of my fans. Somebody I need to be puffed up, Paul says. But I see you as somebody that I love, I long for. Not to conform to me, because that's what a good friend, a good parent, a good coworker does, is not conform to me, to be, live up to my standard, my truth, but formed in Christ. Formed in him, because that's where his deepest joy is. When I was born, um, I was born with 
my left foot actually turning all the way out where my bottom of my foot was facing kind of like the left wall here. And uh, it's kind of an unusual circumstance. And uh, when I was born, you know, uh, they kind of looked and were trying to make sense of how do we, how do we fix this? How do we heal his foot? And they put me for a long time in little teeny tiny high tops that kind of conform. Because when you're, when you're young and you're a baby, your bones are still malleable. One of the things I heard my mom tell me though that I never realized is you can't wear those high tops often. So what actually happened is my grandmother held me and in, my, in her arms, she would take her thumb and she would press into my ankle and for hours would rub all around my foot and for hours and days and weeks would do this as my bones were malleable, slowly forming my foot back into place. And one of the things, I don't remember that. I, you know, this is a story, I'm so, I was so young, I, I don't remember these things. I don't know that. I see the evidence of it with my foot. But what I do know is that's often what it's like. We, we have a God who's holding us. He doesn't just yell at you. He comes in flesh and blood to take you and to hold you with deep affection. That's what ministry should be, to form us, not to a religious greatness, not to be nice, not to be, that's what we typically can substitute being, looking more like Jesus, as being nicer. That's, that's not it. It's to look more like Jesus. And it can be painful. We may not even know why it's painful. And all the while, we may not even remember or know why he's doing it, but he is. That is exactly what this table is. This table is that very representation of what it means. It's a slow forming of our hearts and lives. It's a forming of who we are to really be. You know, this table tells a real truth. If you think about it, we're talking about the blood and body of Jesus himself. That means there's a real issue at hand. There's a real truth that we're turned away. We are, we are not the way we should be. And yet this table shows the real zeal that he has for you because it's not just bread and wine. He said, this is my body and blood so that you may be formed again. So when you're coming to this table, it's not a, and you may think of this, what, what am I supposed to think about when I come to this table? What should my brain be? Should I just be thankful? There's often things you can't see that he's forming, which you do get to do is you get to taste and you get to meditate on the words, just thinking about his zeal for you. But all the while, what it's doing inwardly, not outwardly, not making you just a religious person, but inwardly changing you, forming you, creating new character in you through taking in the body and blood of Jesus. That's his zeal for you. That's this table. That's what, when we recite this Apostles Creed in a moment, that's what they were thinking. That's what they were longing for to remind themselves as they came to this table and they recited creeds to remind us not of our zeal as we come in but of his of turning us back though painful it may be you see yourself at this table but you see how loved you are